This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Ahmad Ashgar. Ahmad is the founder of Falafel Inc. He is the CEO of the Holt Organization. I am excited for him to be here. Welcome to the show, Ahmad. Great. Thanks for having me here, bud. Pleasure to be with you. Ahmad, tell us a little bit more about the Holt Organization and Falafel Inc. Yeah, just for the record, I'm on the foundation. There's the whole universe is a mega, you know, private sector, uh, fifty thousand employee organization. I run the I run our whole prize foundation, um, and uh, I think it's it's a real pleasure. You know, I get to invest in um, startups. Um, we're a worldwide leader in impact education, and you know, our mission is very simple. Uh, entrepreneurship is uh, something for the lucky and the privileged. And we try to take luck out of it. And we teach young people around the world how to build businesses that are for good and for profit. Okay. So you take young, aspiring entrepreneurs, your foundation seeds them, you invest in them, you're an early stage founder. How many entrepreneurs and organizations have you invested in? Yeah, uh, great, great question. So not only do we invest in emerging entrepreneurs, I think the best part and the reason why we're operating as a nonprofit is we create entrepreneurs. We invest in people who don't even know that they have what it takes to be an entrepreneur yet. So kind of the first phase of our program is all about inspiration and education. We teach people how to create enterprise, how to believe in themselves, how to identify really good market opportunities. Um, overall, uh, we graduate through our program uh, 300,000 people every single year. Of those 300,000, you're looking at somewhere between five to 10,000 early stage companies, which make it to our evaluation period. And from there, we're investing in um, anywhere from 10 to 100 a year. Unbelievable. Yeah. So from since inception, I mean, you're talking about, you know, over a thousand companies that we've invested in. We've trained and mobilized over 2 million young people from 121 countries to act and think differently about business. And um, money's raised is over a billion dollars from the companies that we've invested in with market capitalizations, you know, off the charts. Wow. Is there one or two unicorns that you guys have done that people might know? Yeah, uh, probably Aspire Food Group is the most famous. Uh, Aspire, you may not know the brand name, but you'll know the industry of edible insects. Uh, if you've seen the like edible crickets. So I saw one on Shark Tank. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's one of the companies that, um, uh, you know, will have got, gotten acquired or partnered with, with our company Aspire, um, which is the largest in the world. So Aspire Food Group, had the idea in 2000 and, uh, 2012 that they would create an alternative to traditional you know, meat uh, production and an alternative to protein as a mechanism to solve hunger. And what most people don't realize is that 
the crickets, even if you don't love crickets and you think they're gross as a human food source, <laughs> what Aspire's done is they've built an alternative. You have to think about it as a consumable protein. And they've invented a protein substitute, which is 90% cheaper, 100 times uh, less damaging to our environment. Uh, and if you think of the possibilities, um, even if you're a chicken and beef guy, well, where's the costs of, of traditional food agriculture? Um, 70, 80% is in the, the animal feed. So there's an unlimited amount of, of upside. And today Aspire is undisputedly the champions, the leaders in the alternative insect for human consumable space as a, as a human protein. That is wild. I love that story. Very cool. I love what you all are doing. Thank you. You've been doing that for how long? How long have you been there? 12 years. 12 years. And at some point you decided, we're going to start our own business. I'm going to start my own business. And you decided to open up a falafel shop. When did you do that? So, so it's, it's a really funny story. First of all, it was an accident. Okay. So anyways, I, I did have this grand, uh, you know, plan. Um, our, our whole uh, flagship challenge is a million dollar startup award. It's how we get young people excited about business and entrepreneurship. And because we target a lot of young people, entrepreneurs, um, we issue challenges. We're actually one of the largest challenge uh, creation companies in the world. And we, our flagship million dollar program is run in partnership with the United Nations and President Bill Clinton's office. And every year we'll pick like the sustainable development goal challenges and we'll pick one or two and, and we'll say, create a business that solves this challenge and creates a billion dollar enterprise. And um, one of the challenges a few years ago was all about refugees and how to empower refugees. We issued this challenge and um, the marketplace, I had never taken so much shit from the market about this idea of for good for profit than that year, because they were like, they're like, it's impossible to build a for profit enterprise that helps refugees because this is a part of the market from a charitable perspective that should just stay charity. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of talk around like what could be social enterprise, what could be charity, what needs to be pure business. And, you know, I was like, well, all right, what am I going to do about this as I can't invest in potential refugee impact first businesses with that? Cause there wasn't a whole lot of like examples to point to. One thing led to another. I'm originally Palestinian. Um, I've always wanted to open up like falafel, shawarma, hummus shop. It's just like, you know, in our culture, if you make it big, you open restaurants or a gas <laughs> station, you know, and you're in your culture, you make it big, you might buy a building or something, you know, like, like it's just, it's what we do. We're simple people. So um, uh, my wife kind of called me one day out of the blue and said, Hey, there's this restaurant going out of business. Uh, you know, your dream of opening a restaurant is about to come true. And I said, oh my gosh, you know, it's not the right time. And I was struggling with this refugee challenge that we had issued at the Hall Prize. So these two things kind of collided and I built the brand Falafel Inc. And I really built it as a social experiment. I wanted to hire refugees. I wanted to do a deal. I did a deal with the World Food Program where, where a portion of our sales fed refugees and that we employed refugees in the store. Um, and we did it with our first store. And I kid you not, Chris, there was a line out the door from the first day we opened and the line never went away. So that's kind of the story of Falafel Lake. 
Amazing. That is truly inspiring. I guess. I mean, yeah, it's, it's really inspiring. A lot of luck went into it, but because I was like not a normal restaurateur, I looked at the business in a different way. It's like, I like, I looked around the market. Usually when you do your pricing, you figure out like where the neighbor is and then you price accordingly. I figured out where the neighbor was and I made my falafel sandwich half the price, you know, <laughs> like, in fact, some of them was like a third of the price. And then I was like, cause we're close to college as well and university. And then um, I, I kind of rethought the whole production supply chain sales channel. So that is really innovative, really cool. Good stuff. Okay. Let's get to know Ahmad a little better. We're going to go to clear the air. Are you ready? I guess you've got some tough questions coming. <laughs> Question one. When is the last time you did something for the first time? So I'm the kind of guy that likes to do something for the first time every day. <laughs> I just believe like getting uncomfortable is the fastest way to disruption. Um, I think Sunday or Saturday, I cooked on a live cooking show for the first time. Wow. Yes. What show? You can go to my Instagram. It's a show called Craving Palestine. Um, and they, they do, it's like an impact interview while you're cooking. They've started this new series. So you don't just do like an interview like we're doing. You might tell me, hey, you're going to do an interview with me and then you're going to cook something for me. Over and it's supposed to be with chefs. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, because I'm a restaurateur, I guess I qualified. So that was an experience. And what did you cook? At Mayor of Impact uh, and check out the, the show. It's got 30,000 views so far. So I think it went over pretty good. I think so. Mayor of Impact, follow Ahmad. What is, what did you cook? I made something called Mena Ish, which is a famous Palestinian Levant uh, like pastry. It's like a bread dough. So I made dough from scratch. Uh, and then it's got some za'atar uh, on top. And if you know what za'atar is, it's like a, a, a blend of like, kind of like a, uh, it's green. It's a little bitter. Uh, it's like thyme, sour, you know, it's, it's really good. It's an aromatic. Think of rosemary and thyme blend. And I put it actually on my French fries. So I make something at Falafeling called za'atar fries. Uh, they're really famous. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a mix up like rosemary fry would be an equivalent. So I did a baked pastry and I, I did it from scratch. I like, you know, made the dough, and baked and, you know, finished it all on time within my hour segment. Incredible. Second question. What is something most people agree with, but you do not? It's probably everything. <laughs> um, you can't be successful as an entrepreneur unless you're against the grain. Pretty much everything I do is against the grain. Um, but I guess, you know, something most people agree with that I don't, I don't know that you should celebrate Christmas. <laughs> you know, I, I learned early um, that like, if you're successful, you can make Christmas any day of the year you want. And um, I'm pretty unorthodox when it comes to like what days I should work and what days I shouldn't. So I don't, you know, so I'll use the Christmas as an example, but really what that means is like, I've redefined the work week, right? Like 
I, I do a lot of deals on Saturday and Sunday, and then I take a lot of Tuesdays and Wednesdays off. So probably while the rest of the world is, you know, operating on a Monday through Friday schedule or celebrating Thanksgiving. And like, you know, I go to, I go to, I pull my kids out of school to take um, a break, like a spring break. Like I don't do spring break during when everybody else does spring break. I do spring break when I want to do spring break, you know, and that allows me to really like, I guess, capitalize on opportunities that other people might not see. We'll call that creating your own calendar. I like it. Yes, I guess. Yeah. Last question. What is one skill you don't possess that you wish you did? Um, I don't know how to juggle. <laughs> um, you know, I'm pretty good at juggling, actually. Really? Yeah. You should do that on the show. When I, when I was like 10 or 11, we went to the Outer Banks in North Carolina for vacation. And I bought a juggling book. Oh my gosh. And I, on the beach for like two days, I was learning, teaching myself how to juggle, juggle. And I got pretty good. And that was like on a Saturday by Sunday, I was pretty good. I was juggling at the ice cream store. The ice cream owner is like, you should juggle here and get tips. I love it. And I, for like twice that week, I went and juggled in front of this guy's ice cream store. I got some tips and free ice cream. Oh my gosh. That's an experience. I mean, look for me, like you know, as, as a, as a, as a personal attribute, something that, um, I'll call it a skill. It's patience that I don't have at all, uh, that I do. I mean, I'm glad that I'm not patient sometimes, but overall, I I really wish no matter, no matter how hard I try, I just, I just can't do it. I mean, I, I tell myself all the time, like, Hey, you know, be patient. Uh, if somebody tells me something I don't like, like, I always get so angry. Like, it's like, a, you know, and I feel like I like a rage, you know, and I really wish that sometimes I had a, I was more patient because I think I'd get a lot more done both professionally and uh, personally as well. Most leaders, CEOs and entrepreneurs, they lack patience and therefore they move quickly and they don't let the minutia get in the way from them and get in the way of them moving forward. So. I don't think you're alone in that, in the, in. Yeah, I know, but man, as you get older, man, like my younger age, it was great. But, um, you know, it's just like you, you just, I let the smallest things work, like work me up. And, uh, I just, you know, I don't know. Sometimes you're like, ah, I can't take it. Yeah, I understand. All right. Well, that was great. I think the audience learned a little bit about you. Now they know that I can juggle and I can do tricks where I can take the bite at the apple while I'm still juggling the fruit and bounce it off my head and stuff. (laughs) Hungry, bro. (laughs) Let's pivot the conversation. Let's talk about the restaurant world today. You you have 10 restaurants. What's going on in the restaurant world today? How do you see it going forward? And let's start there. Yeah. So thank you. Um, There's a, first of all, there's a lot going on and and I'm lucky. Um, We have Falafel Inc., Um, also, um, we've got, um, in the family, a district barbecue, which is a DC based barbecue shop. We're from, uh, Kansas city. So we actually opened up, uh, a very traditional, uh, Kansas city style barbecue, um, uh, restaurant, which, which does okay in the DC metro area is again, more of like a passion play, but uh, we're seeing two, I think, major trends coming out of post COVID. Uh, that Falafel Inc. 
happens to be on the right side of, whereas district barbecue is on the wrong side of. And that's the ability to um, be very lean uh, and I would say um, specialized uh, in, in your offering, right? You, you, these, the days of these big restaurants with 5,000 items on the menu, um, I think are behind us. Um, Falafel Inc. Uh, sells two things. Um, falafel and hummus. I mean, literally, you know, we do a falafel sandwich bowl. We just introduced shawarma, a vegan shawarma. It's our third product, but like all of our ingredients together are, I think 16 or 17 SKUs. Um, so being lean, uh, is critical. And second is being impact centered. So, and that's retail, not just in restaurants, but that's in general. A lot of, a lot of industry professionals who have been around for, you know, whatever, 20, 30, 40 years um, are refusing to accept that the experience of the customer is different than it was, you know, a couple of decades ago and that the customer needs to share in the brand's values. It's not just about the food. And I think, being impact centered as a business just sets you apart from everybody else and allows you to tap into the largest consumer generation um, in the millennials and the wealthiest that we've ever seen uh, in anyone's lifetime. So Chris, if you look to millennials and a millennial is like born 82 to 94, if you look at how much wealth they control, they are the wealthiest generation of our time. And by 2060, so we're 2021 now, next four years, the largest intergenerational wealth transfer of our history will take place. It's $60 trillion. And it goes from the millennial uh, parents and grandparents to millennials and Zs. And what that means, and the first 5 trillion, by the way, is done at the end of next year. What that means is that for the first time in our history is the majority of the spending powers controlled by a generation who has been interconnected their whole life, who has not been able to avoid you know, like poverty, famine, you know, inequality from around the world. So their idea, their idea around what a brand should be is different than people have run, you know, businesses for the last 20 or 30 years. So, and most old timers are like refuse to see. And I can tell you, cause I went through a round of potential capital raising, which I didn't end up raising any money because people were like, Oh, you donate that much money to charity. Oh, your price is only $3. Oh, you refuse to um, increase your prices. And they're like, you're a dumbass. And I'm like, do you not understand that there's this whole generation of consumer that is aligned with my brand and will come to support my business? And then what happened during COVID, you know, while every other brand is literally bankrupt or thinking about, oh my God, how can I open? My stores are thriving because my customers know that we stand for something more than just a product. So that's on point number two. Point number one, you know, you've got to be able to uh, run on razor, razor thin margins and you've got to be 
really good at what you do. And that's why I think you've got to operate with a very marginal uh, menus. Those are two fascinating trends that you think are going to come from successful businesses. They're going to be lean and nimble and they're going to make an impact. You mentioned that district barbecue is not necessarily on trend. It's a, in the family. And I know for a long time, I know barbecue in general is hard business. I've been told I'm not in the barbecue, but I've been told barbecue is hard. What about district barbecue is not on trend. That's making it difficult. Yeah. So a couple of things, and this is anyone, anyone who's in the meat business is going to feel this, right? Um, number one, it's cost, right? So you're looking at not only the, the, your materials cost, right? Uh, but you're looking at your variable costs, like for production. Like if you look at my falafel, right? Uh, falafel mix is made, you know, you drop it in the fryer, a couple minutes later, you've got a product to sell versus a brisket. Brisket comes to me, you know, six in a case. It's a hundred pounds a case, give or take. I love a good brisket though. Give me some burnt ends. Y yeah, you're right. And I'm going to tell you what I did and you're going to not, and I'll tell you. So, so if you're going to do barbecue, Right. And, and what we had to do to be on trend, because we knew we weren't going to like, you can't be a barbecue restaurant and be like, Oh, by the way, I only sell uh brisket. It, it doesn't work. You, you got to have a, like a meat and three, right? You got exactly. Right? <laughs> meat and three, you've got to sell, you know, combos. You've got to, like, if you got to look, you got to do brisket and you got to do it three ways, chopped, sliced and burnets. Right. You've got to have a, chicken. You've got to have a pulled chicken. You've got to have chicken on the boat. You got to have ribs. You know, you got to have a pulled pork. Sometimes you can't even do like pork butts are not even enough people. You know, you've got to have wings. You've got to have 10 kind of sides. I mean, it's a crazy business. And in, when times got tough and COVID, you know, kind of hit our barbecue uh, brands and my brother runs our, our um, barbecue business, <laughs> you know, you want to downsize the menu. Where do you start? Like, what do you like? You're like, well, I still got to have four kinds of meat, ribs, et cetera. So, you know, that operational efficiency didn't go anywhere. Um, prep, you know, I mean, people don't understand. Like you, you get brisket, like six in a case, you know, you've got an hour of trimming, right? Then you've got, you know, you've got to do your marinade or whatever. Then you got to come back the next day or 12 hours later, you know, load the smoker, and your shortest smoke, I don't care what technique you use, is 14 hours. You know, that's a minimum. And you want to do burn ends, get 26 hours of smoke. So I just like, uh, how do you get cost down? You just can't. So um, you've got to do some really innovative things. And that's when I say we're on the wrong side of that trend on point one. Um, definitely, we're trying to do our, our share on the impact side, but it's just, it just tough. Uh, but I will tell you what we did do to kind of, that was controversial and, and, you know, probably have my customers listening today. Um, I reduced the menu. Uh, I eliminated all anything that couldn't be produced by a two man crew. I eliminated because I just like, I had to do it. Right. So specialty sandwiches, some of our more higher end sides, we did like a white chicken chili from scratch, had to eliminate those, you know, I hated to do it. They're one of my best sides. And then, um, and then I, uh, I upped the prices like significantly, right? I'm like 35, 40% better, more expensive than anyone else in town, but I'm the only one that does burn-ins. I mean, I'm selling burn-ins for like $35 a pound, right? 
but my quality, I had to make a decision. I moved my quality to 99.9%. And then I moved my quantity business down so that I could stay alive in that business. And it's worked. You know, my sales, I'm probably doing, you know, half, but I'm getting so much premium out of the product that people are willing to pay. And I've got my, you know, fixed customers. And that's a completely different strategy than the falafel product, which is like lean, mean, volume. You know, this is uh, a different business. So you've got to pick, like you can't, too many operators are trying to do everything. You, you can't do that. You've got to understand your economics and build a business that reflect those. Incredible insights in the restaurant business. And I love that we were able to talk about two different concepts and one is a falafel concept that has very limited items. One is a barbecue business that has a ton. That was great. I want to go back to the falafel and I want to talk about one of the stories of one of your stores that opened up and the story of how that happened. What location are we going to? Uh, let's go to let's go to Kansas, where I'm from. Hometown. Kansas. The least likely location for a falafel ink. And what town are we going to? Lawrence. That's uh, the university. That's where KU is. That's where I spent, you know, as a kid, I grew up in Kansas. I grew up in Leavenworth, which is about 25 miles from Lawrence. So as a troublemaking high school kid, you know where we spent our Fridays and Saturdays, like in Lawrence. And, um, you know, I love where I'm from. I'm born in Kansas. Uh, You know, I'm a huge Jayhawk fan, huge Chiefs fan. I know, you know, you guys don't talk smack. We lost, we know, we, we got the suit. People like to remind me like, Oh, you lost the Super Bowl. I'm like, we won last year. Like it's all good. <laughs> um, and of course, yes. To those of you that don't know, Kansas city is technically in Missouri, but we represent the Kansas people also represent Kansas city. It's on the Kansas side too. So before people are like, Oh wait, Kansas city's in Relax. All right. There's <laughs> literally one road and it's like that side is Kansas. That side is Missouri. And they're both Kansas City. So um, Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, I'll tell you, man, I, I always wanted to bring Falafel Inc. Uh, to Kansas. And people are like, why don't you bring your barbecue brand to Kansas? Like, that's a better. And I'm like, that's the whole one of the reasons I started Falafel Inc., was to create a uh, more empathy for the, the, the plight and challenges of refugees. And when you walk into any one of my stores, my stores are built to look like refugee camps. They're made of uh, sheet metal, uh, OSB. Uh, you'll find pictures of, of, of refugee camps. A lot of them I took myself. Um, And you'll find that if you were to go to like a refugee camp in Greece, uh, Lebanon, Palestine, you know, uh, pick pick your country that you find falafel because falafel is cool and vegan and hipster in the U.S. But in those camps, people are eating falafel because it's a very cheap, affordable source of protein. Okay, so when you walk into my store, you're reminded and it says, you know, refugees and uh, you know, we, we, every meal you buy helps support refugees and there's pictures. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are in your mind, you're going to be like, what exactly is a refugee and what is the, the plight that they, that they go through? So obviously being in LA or being in DC, 
99% of my customers already know what a refugee is. But when I opened Falafel Inc., when I opened my first store, I was like, I'm definitely, as soon as I get an opportunity, I'm going to take the Falafel Inc. brand to the Midwest, where, you know, oftentimes I know from my friends growing up, I was the only Palestinian kid they knew, right? I was the only, you know, uh, again, I, my family was not refugees, but as a, as a people, the you know, Palestinians are the, the largest refugee population in the world, that I would one day open a restaurant in Kansas. And the opportunity presented itself. Uh, there was a, you know, a PETA place uh, down in Lawrence that was going out, going under. And a couple of my buddies who still, you know, went to KU uh, and were working in Lawrence called me and said, bro, you're not going to believe this. The, you know, the famous PETA shop in town is going bust and um, they're shutting down. Uh, why don't you bring Falafel Inc. To, um, to the neighborhood? And, you know, again, like random, right? Like, but I'm from Kansas, you know, and it just made total sense. So a couple of phone calls later, uh, I did a deal and, uh, you know, we'll be opening up, but uh, store's not open yet. We're doing construction now. We're doing our fit out and we'll be open in May and um, I'll be there personally. I don't go to all the openings anymore, but that will be a location that I will be at. And it's one of the locations that I'm most proud of. One, because it's in my home state and two, because I know that the traditional customer who walks through those doors may not really understand why and how they can support uh, refugees. And I'll give them what I call bites, an opportunity to have bite-sized impact. I like the wording bite-sized impact, the, the play on words. That's good. So what type of location? You, you, you're in malls, you're in open air, you have a bunch of different, what type of location is this? Uh, this is a, uh, you know, every college town in America has like, where the kids go bar hopping. Yes. It's like, so right in the, it's a street location, street location. You've got some, you know, brownstones, you've got some bars. Uh, it's a freestanding building, you know, row house, row, row house style, uh, you know, location across the street is the, you know, the, the, the famous club. Uh, the street is, is mass Ave, you know, everybody, I think every college town has a mass average, you know, the equivalent. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 for us, it's our ideal location because college and university students are our kind of segment market. Um, that's our bread and butter. And we're excited. It's, you know, 1200 square foot location, uh, plenty of room to, um, you know, to get uh, two lines. Our new model has two lines. It's all takeout, no dine-in, uh, quick, fast, affordable, uh, and fresh. You do delivery? You know, we don't. We, to this day, have not done a delivery deal we might i'm working on our own um, delivery where i have college students pick up products from our store and take it back to campus and then they get falafel bucks in exchange um, so we'll probably just launch that program uh, but we we haven't done you know I, I don't believe in doordash or uber like i don't believe it. okay because the fees and all that yeah it's it, not just the fees you don't build community by letting a stranger make money off your community. Okay. And, and that's what door. So the guy, like we're in DC, the majority of the, the, the door dashers and the Ubers guess where those guys live. They don't live in DC. They live somewhere else and they drive their cars into my backyard and they make money on me. And then they take that money 
and they go spend it somewhere else. Okay, that's not okay, especially in a time of COVID where every dollar inside of an, a micro economy counts, right? So I'm not about that, but you have to understand the economics. You're literally taking money from me and you're not reinvesting it in my neighbor. You're reinvesting it in some other community. That's not how you build strong economies and that's not how you build community. Um, so I, I'm, I just, I don't believe it. So I don't subscribe to, to, the, to the service. Wow, I have never heard anyone put it like that. You don't build community by leveraging, letting someone else leverage your community to make money and bring it somewhere else. That is really, really profound. Going back to the store, it's opening soon, which means you probably signed this deal during COVID. Oh yeah, I've done uh, five deals now during COVID. You did five deals during COVID. This was one of them. When during COVID did you sign this? Uh, probably right in the thick of things. <laughs> Six months ago, you know, seven months ago. Okay. Your friends told you the PETA guy wasn't making it. School was closed. He went out. They called you. My assumption, you have locations with major landlords across the country, Mace Ridge and others. Is this landlord that or is he different? Yeah, this was, you know, uh, more of a, you know, regional uh, landlord. Um, but, you know, these guys are panicking, Chris. Like, like it, the town's a ghost. I mean, I, I guess if you're there, imagine owning a piece of real estate where every day there's the hustle and bustle of foot traffic. Every day for the last, you know, 20 years, you've owned this building and, you know, people are like actively walking across the front of your center or your building. And then you wake up one morning and it, it's zero. I don't have to imagine it. It happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Yeah. And like, and like, uh, I wish you guys are institutional, right. But imagine like it's your, you're used to seeing that building every day as a regional player, maybe like even a, a, a national. And then like tomorrow, nobody next week, nobody next month, nobody you start to believe that this is a permanent fixture of reality, that something has changed. And it's like anyone who trades stocks, right? And I'm trained, maybe maybe because I'm, I'm a trained, um, you know, finance guy. But it's like when your stock is failing, like, and it's down 70 points, you're like, this shit ain't never coming up. But the, the, the opportunistic mindset is it's on sale, right? And I doubled down, you know, and, and that's what I feel like is happening with all the locations. Like I bought a location and I almost feel bad about it. I'm not even gonna tell you where, West Coast. I bought a business from somebody four months ago who today, he's looking at me like this. And we're friends. He says, I can't believe I sold you that business. And I'm like, why not? And he was like, dude, you're going to, you're going to kill it. And I would have killed it if I just waited because things are starting to slowly open back up. And I'm like, well, you know, you were scared and he guy's wealthier than I am. I mean, it's not, it wasn't a money situation, but um, you know, if you're a pessimist, COVID killed you. If you're an optimist, COVID might be the best opportunity that you've ever, that you'll see in your lifetime. And, and that's how I view. True story. True story. If you're a pessimist, COVID was really troubling. If you're an optimist, well, COVID was troubling for everybody. But if you're a pessimist from a business perspective, 
COVID could have put you out. If you're an optimist, uh, you, you could have found opportunity. There's no doubt about that. These falafel locations, what, what are they, what does the average unit do in like sales per square foot or sales? What are, what are they, how do they, how do they compare? You know, these numbers are kind of skewed, but you know, if we're not doing a thousand dollars a square foot, you know, something is, is wrong. But you know, that being said, we take very small footprints uh, as well. But you know, I mean, we, we look, here's the thing. And I'll, I'll tell you a story. Like, I read about the store, how to, you know, one of Starbucks and Schultz's success, how to keep their coffee fresh. And they're like, every 30 minutes, they put the timer on. And if the coffee's not sold, they throw it away. Um, that stuck in my mind. And one of the reasons people think like our falafels, like some magical recipe or something. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's good. But be, the reason we're so successful is because our price point is so low and our that keeps our falafel fresh because we're so busy, right? So I've got to do those numbers. Otherwise the model doesn't work because if I'm not selling fresh falafel, you know, the, the product won't meet the standard. So, you know, we're, we're doing okay. And we all like, I, I kind of, I like to look at it as a, as a combination of like volume um, relative to, to footprint, you know, and that's how we're evaluating all of our sites. On, on this Kansas location, you're going to open and it sounds like you're going to open in summer when school's out. So potentially you could have a slow start and hopefully as your staff gets cooking and going, September rolls around, you're cooking with gas. Is that? Yeah, we're, we're actually, I'm sitting on four build outs right now that I'm not even open. I'm just like, I mean, it's, it's pretty insane. People think I'm crazy, but I'm just like, like literally, you know, the stores are done, papers up, uh, sign is up, but we're like not open and I'm waiting for mid August. So as soon as college is back, we basically will open overnight and people will be like, what happened? How did you do that? You know, and we're excited about that, but yes, uh, we'll be open and, you know, we'll do enough business to cover the bills. And then, uh, once the, once the schools open up and hopefully, these vaccines are rolled out, we'll be able to really uh, ramp up on our volume. Good luck, man. I think you will. This is a great story. How many locations do you think this can get to? I mean, I'm probably going to get us to 30 myself, and then I'm going to hand off to somebody who can take it to a thousand. I mean, if you look at it from a, from a retail perspective, it has similar economics to like a little Caesar, uh, and I'm just looking at it from, you know, not product or anything, but, you know, in terms of like occupancy costs, speed of build out, you know, I, uh, Chris, I can open a store in 90 days, uh, you know, start lease to open. Um, so, you know, it's like, there is no limit. Um, I'm fully supply chain integrated. So, you know, it's like order guide products to get delivered three days a week. Um, and then it's just so simple. There's riches and niches. And with that, I got three more questions for you. Can you go quick? Yeah, go ahead. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? Oh, oh man. I mean, the sandwich I like the most is the McDLT from McDonald's. But uh, retailer, all right, come back. I'll think about that. Give me another. Last one. item over $20 that you bought in a store. Like food? No, any item, any retail item. Uh, pair of Tom's shoes. All right. From where? What's it? Nordstrom. Nordstrom. If you and I were shopping at Target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? 
Uh, the cookware. That's a that was easy. That's I like right. that, that that's cookware brand that I wish would come back from the dead. I would say A and W, but I guess I just found out that A and W is still alive. I grew up on the on the um, on the Frito pie, you know. Frito pie. I've never had it. No. Oh my, dude. You. I thought you were a retail guy. <laughs> I've never had Frito pie. So they take a bag of Fritos. Okay. You open them. They put chili on them. Like inside the bag, you take a little mini bag of Fritos, chili, cheese, sour cream, lettuce, tomato, taco sauce wow. in, in the bag. Wow. So good. Well, we'll keep that as the answer. You got to go to your kids. This was great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.